a political fable for our time. Count me intrigued. Hey friends, welcome to the Press Club C Podcast. I'm Ray Keating. In this 88th episode, I interview George Leaf about his new book, The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, a political fable for our time. Before we get into that, though, let's quickly answer that key question once more. What the heck is the Press Club C anyway? Each letter stands for stuff that we talk about. P is for politics. R is for religion, mainly Christianity. E is for economics. S is for sports. That second S is for stories, books and writing, my own books, other books, fiction, nonfiction, reviews, author interviews. C is for culture, pop culture and otherwise. L. L is for life, the big catch-all. U is for understanding lessons in areas like history and economics and so on. B is for business and entrepreneurship. And that final C in Press Club C is for conservative. Why? Because I am one. In, in particular, we have to define things these days. I'm a Reagan, Kemp, Buckley, Coolidge, Lincoln, Madisonian kind of conservative. And also, folks, please consider my two new books. First, on the, on the fiction front, Cathedral an Alliance of St. Michael novel. That's my 16th work of fiction. It's the first in what I hope turns out to be an Alliance of St. Michael series. What's it about? Well, this alliance brings together men and women with varied backgrounds and talents to work covertly against the two most significant threats to Christianity and civilization at the dawn of the 1930s, communism and fascism. In Moscow, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior is going to be obliterated to make way for the Palace of the Soviets. The Alliance of St. Michael readies itself for its first mission, find and salvage a rare, rare item of great significance from the cathedral before the building is lost. As for my second book, that's my latest nonfiction book. It's called The Weekly Economist, 52 Quick Reads to Help You Think Like an Economist. It addresses the following question. If you don't have a degree in economics, how do you figure out what actually makes economic sense and what doesn't? doesn't matter if you're watching CNBC, CNN, Fox, you're trolling the internet. There are all sorts of assertions regarding the economy and economic policy, and people are left wondering what's accurate, what's not. Perhaps even worse, they just accept what they hear without much question, um, what they heard even when the declarations tend to be contradictory. And of course, politics infests and distorts what is put forth about the economy and policy. So the Weekly Economist offers quick reads on topics essential to thinking clearly on economics and applying sound economic principles to all sorts of topics. If the reader were to take just a few minutes each week and to read one of the 52 quick essays, then by the end of the year, they would have a better understanding of economics and how to think more like an economist. And yes, I would argue that would be a good thing. By the way, signed books, all of my books, signed books are at raykeatingonline.com and paperbacks, hardcovers, and Kindle editions are available over at amazon.com. So again, folks, please consider Cathedral, an Alliance of St. Michael novel, and The Weekly Economist, 52 Quick Reads to Help You Think Like an Economist. Well, there you go. Now let's get to my interview with George Leaf. The book is The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, A Political Fable for Our Time. The author is George Leaf. George, welcome to the Press Club C Podcast. 
Glad to be on with you, Ray. I appreciate you being here. Before we get into the book, because once we're in it, we're going to be in there for a while. Um, why don't you give the listeners a, a quick rundown on your, your background and experience and how you arrived at this point to write a novel? Okay, certainly. Well, uh, grew up in Wisconsin, went to a small college in Wisconsin, then decided to try law school in the mid-70s, graduated, but decided also that the legal profession was not going to be my cup of tea. So I went in a different direction and found myself in, in the teaching ranks starting in 1980. And for the decade of the 80s, I taught uh, economics and philosophy and business law to undergraduates in a small college in Michigan. After that, I wound up uh, working in the state legislature in Michigan for a while. And then I found my way into the ranks of the think tank denizens. And since 1999, I've been down in North Carolina working for a think tank that focuses on higher education issues, the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. And all these years, I've been writing public policy books, papers, articles, blogs, and so forth. And it never occurred to me to try writing fiction until the summer of 19, uh, 2020, when during the tumult of the election year, I got the idea for a political novel. And the idea just kept growing. So I started jotting down notes, and then they started writing paragraphs and chapters. And eventually, the book turned out, uh, and we... We, I'm talking about me and my uh, publisher, decided to call it The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale. Now, Jennifer is a thoroughly woke left-wing journalist who works for the Washington Post. And she is thrilled to be chosen as the person to write the authorized biography of America's first woman president when Patricia Farnsworth, who was just left office after eight years of absolutely transforming America, just the way all the progressives say it must be transformed, getting away from capitalism and instituting a planned economy, equity, uh, all, all the free programs that, that the left has always wanted, free college, universal basic income. They have gotten it all because they were absolutely uh, in charge. No opposition. And not only did they get their, their way, but they managed to silence the opposition through uh, hate speech laws and threats uh, launched through the bureaucracy. So it's, it's a very transformed country after eight years of Patricia Farnsworth. But Jennifer thinks it's great. It, it conforms to all of her beliefs about what America ought to be like. So she goes out to interview the president and start the, the process of writing her, her biography. And she spends a couple of days interviewing Patricia Farnsworth, and she just loves everything she hears. She's, she admires the, the grit of the, the former president who overcame all her obstacles and uh, fought back the demons and transformed America. And she's thinking about 
her book when one evening she goes into uh, a local town, Laguna Beach, for dinner. And after dinner, she has the unpleasant experience of being attacked by some thugs. And she's saved from them only by the timely intervention of a black Navy veteran who happens to be carrying an illegal gun. If it hadn't been for his timely intervention, she'd have been perhaps killed. Well, she thinks that she owes him something and says, well, let's, let's, have, let's have some coffee at my hotel and, 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 and talk. And only then does she start to listen to a voice that she's never heard before, to listen to arguments she's never heard before. And she's dumbfounded at finding that, they, that a black person is not at all in favor of all of the transformative policy maneuvers that have taken place uh, during the previous eight years in America. And since Farnsworth is governor of California, he says it goes, it goes way back to her days as, uh, as governor, the damage that she's done to that state. Well, Jennifer is quite flummoxed about all of this. She, she's astounded that a, a black person could hold such views that she thought were, were just cartoonish right-wing views before. But here's a person who she has to respect, who believes things that are totally at odds with her worldview. Well, this the, the guy, his name is Will Collier, then invites Jennifer to a meeting of a local uh, citizens group called the Free People of Laguna Beach. And she's eager to go. She's interested now, as, as, a, as a journalist should be, in hearing what people actually think. So she goes to that meeting and learns much, much more from people who also are disaffected by eight years of progressivism and don't think much at all about Patricia Farnsworth. Well, this has shaken Jennifer's belief system to the core. And then, this is about halfway through the book, and I'm not going to give away too much more, but other things happen that cause Jennifer to abandon her progressive views and do some things that will cause quite a furor in Washington to the extent that she actually has to leave the town for her own safety. So I'm not going to say anything more about what she's done, but I will say that what I have done is sprinkled throughout the book a whole lot of lessons about economics, about philosophy, about public choice theory, the kind of things that I used to like to get my students to try to understand. And I thought that a novel would be a good way to get these messages across to readers. For instance, Will Collier, who saves Jennifer's life, uh, oftentimes sounds quite a bit like Thomas Sowell, for example. And she's never listened to Thomas Sowell. has no idea who he is. But And she, she probably would have never paid any attention. But what I'm hoping is that the readers will take the, the messages that I put in Will Collier's mouth and understand that uh, America is in deep trouble. We're at the near the the the, the abyss. The the progressives have accumulated so much power and have so infiltrated our education system and all of our institutions 
that we may be near the point of no return. In fact, one of the characters suggested he thinks that is the case. So my point in writing the book was to let people know that we are near the point of no return, but probably not at that point just yet. America could be saved, but what it's going to take is a restoration of the freedom, the the belief in freedom that used to animate most Americans. So that was my point in writing the book. Excellent. Well, a good summary. And, and you're right to stop there because you want to get people to to read the book. You don't want to give the whole thing away. And um, so there, are, as you were talking there and, and some notes that I jotted down while I was reading the book, um, you covered a, a great deal there. I, the Jennifer, Jennifer character was fascinating to me for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, kind of the what we might think that, you know, the, the standard left-wing journalist, progressive journalist. And I, I, I note that you use, let's back up for a minute. Why do you use in the subtitle political fable? Let's touch on that real quick. And then I'll get back to my point on Jennifer. Okay. I, I think that the book is a political fable because it illuminates so many of the key issues that we, we we're now confronting. Uh, Inflation, the overpowering uh, federal bureaucracy, uh, out-of-control politicians who think that uh, the the key to everything is to spend more money. It's a political fable because uh, I I touch on all these things that are are current issues— in a, in a way that I think illuminates them and will animate people to think about our our, our national condition and and do something about it. Okay. Um, so Jennifer is this progressive journalist. Um, I I thought she was a fascinating character um, for a variety of reasons, but one aspect of her, what you brought out with her and and the story itself was. Um, you know, this political fable, what you're doing here, you're persuading, you're arguing in the best sense of the word, you know, rather than what we've seen so much in our, in our real world politics of, you know, name calling and talking points. So you're capturing that aspect, (laughs) the bad aspect of our current politics and so on. But Jennifer, right. But Jennifer isn't evil, right? Uh, that word no, gets thrown around a she's, lot. she's not evil. She's been poorly educated, and she's fallen in with a, a crowd of people who she, uh, she thinks are sophisticated and intellectuals. But there's one thing that ties Jennifer back to the real world, which happens to be her love of music. She can't quite accept all the progressive attacks on classical music as, as white hegemony. And because she doesn't accept all of their attacks, that's, that's the chink in the armor. And uh, she finds common, common interests with other people who happen to also appreciate music, but don't like anything else. She doesn't agree with them on anything else, but she finds that, you know, we have this common bond and doggone it. I think I better, pay a little bit of attention to what you have to say. Right. And then you have an assortment, not just will, but you have an assortment of characters that in essence are teaching her, right? Um, Right. Yes. Yes. I I tried to work in, as I mentioned, a whole lot of lessons of of philosophy and economics, uh, 
that uh, that many people would never get if if they just were were faced with a a a, a book about the about economics per se. But I think they will understand the lessons as I put them into uh, the the mouths of my characters. Yeah, there's power in story, right? There, there's a that's great exactly power. it. Yeah. Yes, that's right. that's why I thought let's try a let's try a novel. And and as an economist myself, and as a novelist, I'm fascinated whenever economics comes up in fiction. Okay, I I play around with it as well. One of my yes, characters. I know. <laughs> um, so. And you have a lot there. So let me ask you, as a writer, right, you're you're going from very similar to what I, I do, right? Public policy work. I wrote newspaper column for 20 plus years and so on. And now you're writing fiction. And, you know, you're, you're trying to um, accomplish something with that. So how did you handle integrating the economics in a natural way. And when I say natural way to the story, you know, that, that it's not, um, you know, hitting somebody over the head with a two by four, it's characters naturally, you know, relaying to her and they have good reason for doing it. Yes. How did you handle all that? I mean, well, I, I, I had to think about it a lot, first of all, because uh, that is really the, the, the challenge is how do you make the dialogue seem like it, it's it's actually something that could take place between human beings. And it was for that reason that I, I came up with, uh, with a number of different settings. There was the Free People of Laguna Beach meeting setting, where she starts learning about what the, the, the people who live out there have experienced. And she finds their stories to be interesting. It's a story about stories. And then she talks to some other people who knew Patricia Farnsworth in what I think are pretty realistic settings. She's interviewing people who knew her, first of all, as a college roommate. And the college roommate happens to be a, 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 a biology professor who sets Jennifer straight about a lot of issues relating to uh, education policy. And then she talks to a law professor who had taught Patricia Farnsworth when she was at Stanford. And she learns a lot that she would never have understood about the importance of the rule of law, about an independent judiciary, about the Constitution. So that's how I I tried to make it seem like real conversations that could actually take place where she would learn from people who she otherwise probably would have never paid any attention to. Yeah, and I think, and that's that's a challenge. I, I find that the challenge when I write um, myself when I'm writing fiction is is the dialogue is key. I mean, I think we've all those of us that read fiction, you pick up a book, and and if if the characters don't sound real in terms of their, uh, in terms of how they talk, right, in terms of how they interact, yeah, you just kind of lose the reader. So I think you accomplish that, and you had more of a, ch- you certainly have more of a challenge doing that than I have with my books because you're, you're explicitly writing, you know, as I mean, this, the, the subtitle tells us it's a political fable for our time. So I think you accomplished that. And that was no easy task. Well, thanks. Um, you know, listen, overall, I, I, I love the book. It was, I, I found it insightful. 
Um, I love, of course, the economics. Um, I, th- there were times where it was amusing. There were times where it was a little fright. It was frightening. There were times where you felt uncomfortable. I, I, um, I would hope so. Cause I, I yeah. wanted all of that. I, I wanted it to feel uncomfortable because I want people to think, gee, we, we are near the precipice. These people do have extraordinary power and they are relentless. That's, that's, Perhaps the most important thing of the whole book is to to get people to understand that this country is in grave peril. Yeah, and, and what I again to go back to the other point is that you're doing it in a constructive way where you're. Sh- I mean, literally, you're literally showing in the book that we can have discussions with people. We can try to teach people. Now, listen, we all, you and I, I mean, being in the public policy arena, we know plenty of people probably most of them are elected officials <laughs> that don't really listen um, and they're just doing their thing. But, but I do find that, you know, the, the, what we see at the national level these days is less so when you get down on the ground and you actually talk to people one-on-one where you so, right. show that you have shared interests. Like the, I thought that was wonderful how you used music in that way. Right. And whether well, it's music or, or something else that we have these common bonds and interests and, and all of a sudden people, you know, aren't monsters, they're humans and we can have discussions about things. Right. Right. And I use music because it's something that I happen to know a great deal about and really love. And it made writing the book a whole lot easier to keep working in stuff that I like to write about anyway. Right, right, write what you know and write what you enjoy. Right there, you exactly. There's, there's an example. <laughs> um, all right, l- let me let me bring this around then, because you said that the ultimate point here, or one of the key points here, is you know, are we where are we on this scale of uh, of progressive progressivism? How far gone? You, this is obviously a warning, a very clear warning about what would happen for if a progressive agenda were fully implemented implemented in the US. So let me ask George Leaf, are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist when it comes to the future of ideas and the area you work in, education, politics, the economy? What's your outlook? Well, I'm I'm guardedly optimistic for this reason, Ray. I think that the progressives have overplayed their hand. They have badly damaged their brand, and people are starting to wake up. They're starting to see that that public officials are not their friends. They don't care about the public good. They care about themselves. The whole COVID episode for the last couple of years, I think, has got a lot of Americans thinking, yeah, these people are not our friends. They're not public servants. They don't care about us. They love power. They they weren't following science. They were following their authoritarian instincts. And this makes me think that 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 the 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 body politic may have maybe starting to open up its eyes and recognize that that uh, Jefferson was right. That government that governs least governs the best. We've been under under almost omnipotent government for a couple of years now, and most people are realizing it's terrible for us. We can't eat their ideology; it won't it won't fill up our gas tank, and and we're sick of it. And so that's why I'm I'm guardedly optimistic, and I think with a good intellectual counterattack, the 
there's a good chance we can start to bring the country back to to uh, the to its origins, to a, the belief in freedom and individual liberty. Right. Well, I, I like that. Bring you back. Bring us back, because you know Americans always were. Americans always had a healthy skepticism of politicians and politics and government. They, I think, they did view it mostly as a necessary evil. Um, and I think, you know, I've had a discussion on and off for the past several years with people saying that I think we were a right of center country for the longest time, and I fear that we're a left of center country uh, in so many ways now. But, but I think you're right in terms of what's developing. Um, and how people see the problems, but you're also right. And I'm glad you brought that up is that you have to have the intellectual confidence, uh, and principles and beliefs to offer something else. You just can't say, Hey, those guys stink. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, yes. Yeah. Have, and and, and, and it, that's it, why I like the book because that's what this book does. I mean, you're, when you're teaching Jennifer, what all these characters are teaching Jennifer you're you're taking the reader certainly along. You're, that that's what you're doing. That's what your purpose. You're, you're, that was that's exactly right. the point. And I hope that uh, it won't just be read by people who are right of center. I hope that a lot of people who are in the middle and some people who are left of center will will take take a few minutes and think about it and say, well, gee, maybe we do have something to worry about here. Maybe all those other countries that have suffered so much because they they allowed government to grow and stifle individual freedom, uh, maybe we should learn from their example before it's too late. I agree wholeheartedly, and I say that people should uh, learn from the awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale. So I, I love the book, and uh, and George, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast with me. Oh, my my pleasure to talk to you, Ray. My pleasure indeed. All right, George, we'll do it again. Next time we're going to talk about higher education stuff. How does that sound? That, that sounds good. I love talking about that too. All right. Thanks, George. Very good, Ray. Thanks a lot. Again, that was great having George Leaf on the show. Folks, thanks for listening. Your feedback and suggestions are always welcome. Again, please check out my various endeavors and books, um, including uh, Cathedral and Alliance of St. Michael novel, The Weekly uh, Economist, uh, also, all of my pastor's Stephen Grant thrillers and mysteries, there are 15 of those now. Another nonfiction book, Free Trade Rock. So please check out all of that at Amazon.com and over at RayKeatingOnline.com. And don't forget, if you're interested in Disney things, go to DisneyBizJournal.com. Thanks so much, and God bless. <laughs>